Well, good afternoon. Good afternoon. All seven of you, captive audience. <laughs> okay, good. So uh, this afternoon, I wrote something not too long ago that I want to share with you all. I'm really just going to read it. I thought about rewriting it in a way so I could actually present it instead of y'all just listening to me read. But then I thought, don't reinvent the wheel. So I shortened it up a bit, and I'm just going to read it to you, and uh, we'll be done. It's called, well, I titled it, The Divine Paradigm and the Sign of Certainty. The Divine Paradigm and the Sign of Certainty. Oftentimes, events that seem counterintuitive testify the most powerful truths. Above all is the Christian profession that God became man. The God of the universe was willfully conceived in the Blessed Mary's womb, born in a stable, lived a sinless life, was tortured, numbered with the transgressors, and killed. All of these events took place in accordance with a divine purpose, one that no man on his own could ever predict or expect. God saved humanity by allowing us to kill him. God destroyed sin through the sinful actions of men. God defeated death by dying. He chose what was foolish in order to confound the wise. 1 Corinthians 1.27 In the same way that God is able to cause a virgin to conceive, God is able to bring divine assurance out of man's uncertainty. So if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and turn to Genesis 22, and we're going to read from verse 1. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Genesis 22, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back to you again. So, uh, and Abraham took the wood... Sorry, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took his hand, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. 
And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. We'll stop there in Genesis. So upon first reading, this Genesis passage appears to be a story of great uncertainty. Isaac is uncertain. He's carrying wood for a burnt offering, yet no animal is taken for a sacrifice. Abraham is uncertain. Isaac was Abraham's promised son through whom God established an everlasting covenant. How can this be if he is to die? How can the world be blessed through Isaac now that Abraham has been instructed to kill him? Lastly, as some have argued, God himself is uncertain. It is not until Abraham's actions are displayed that God truly comprehends Abraham's devotion. It was not until the moment before Isaac was slaughtered that God responded to Abraham, For now I know that you fear God. This latter assertion would be the position of a philosophical group known as open theists. Open theism affirms many of the omni-attributes of God, such as omnipotence, his all-powerfulness, his omnipresence, that he's ever-present, and his omnibenevolence, he's all-loving. However, the omni that they staunchly deny is omniscience, that God is all-knowing. Genesis 22 is one of the most commonly cited passages by open theists in attempt to prove that God is not all-knowing, or more specifically, He doesn't know the future. They believe God is able to learn as humans are and prove this by citing His words to Abraham, For now I know that you fear God. However, in order to read the Bible consistently as an open theist, God's attribute of omnipresence must be rejected as well as omniscience. Genesis 18 reads, Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. That's Genesis 18, 20 and 21. So according to the uh, hyper-literal standards of an open theist's interpretation method, God, in this verse in Genesis 18, does not seem to be operating as an omnipresent being. God's knowledge here appears to be contingent upon his observations. Therefore, this passage must be a defeater for the doctrine of omnipresence, as Genesis 22 is allegedly for the doctrine of omniscience. However, an appropriate understanding of this passage in its immediate context would quickly demonstrate that it in no way jeopardizes the omnipresence of God. A consistent understanding of omnipresence should not be based upon one particular verse, but in light of all scriptural revelation. In Genesis 18, God had uniquely appeared to Abraham in the form of a man. God knew Abraham was perceiving him to be a man and treating him as such. So why would God not refer to himself in humanistic language? Based upon this very specific circumstance, it would make sense for God to explain his actions and intentions using anthropomorphic terms. 
The purpose of this passage is not to reveal that God is a human being who is confined within our three-dimensional space, but to demonstrate how God presented himself to Abraham in a specific way for a specific purpose. When we evaluate the totality of the Bible to understand the nature of God's presence, the attribute of omnipresence becomes very clear. Jeremiah 23:24 says, Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? declares Jehovah. Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? declares Jehovah. Proverbs 15:3 says, The eyes of Jehovah are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. So as we can with omnipresence, and contrary to the teachings of open theism, we can likewise affirm the all-knowingness or omniscience of God through the, cons- the consistent testimony of Holy Scripture. 1 John 3.20 says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. Psalm 139.4, Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Jehovah, you know it altogether. In light of these passages, if it is settled that God does possess exhaustive knowledge, what then is God uh, communicating to us in His, For now that I know that you fear God, declaration? As it was in Genesis 18, the purpose of Genesis 22.12 is not to reveal something about the fundamental attributes of God, but rather to be a prophetic paradigm for humanity. It's no secret that Christians are to be godly people, that is, God-like people. We should strive to be like our God in our nature, in our character, and in our action. God both uh, desires and commands that we become imitators of Him. And if He commands us to do so, will He not then provide ways in which we can? From the beginning, humans were created to be imitators of God's nature by virtue of how we were designed. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in His own image, and the image of God He created him. Male and female He created them. God's image was the programming used for humanity to be rational and moral agents, as God is a rational and moral being. Imitation of the Creator's nature has been deeply woven into every person from the moment of their creation. But we are not limited to imitating God's nature. We are also to imitate His character. The Lord Jesus has said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? That's Luke 6.46. This is, one, this is one of many Christ's calls to obedience. Jesus is not a hypocrite. He would never command us to do something He Himself is unwilling to do, as Jesus practiced perfect obedience to the will of the Father. We must do as the Lord commands, and by obeying His words, we are in fact following His character. Therefore, to obey God is to imitate God. Meanwhile, the Holy Spirit continues to instruct us through the apostolic teachings of Paul to imitate Paul insofar as he is imitating Christ. First Corinthians says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved." Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This 
is the divine paradigm, the imitation of Almighty God. Why should God's people be kind to strangers? Because we too were once strangers until God befriended us. Why should God's people forgive their trespassers? Because God has forgiven us. Why should God's people show mercy to the undeserving? Because God has shown us mercy. Why should God's people love their enemies? Because God first loved us. God has designed us to be imitators of His nature, provided a myriad of ways for us to imitate His character, forgiveness, mercifulness, loving kindness, and also ways in which we can imitate His actions. An example of this, remaining within the topic of Genesis 22, would be the creation and institution of the Sabbath day. Genesis 2, 2-3 reads, And on the seventh day God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. Again, the open theist would be forced by his own standards to interpret this passage as a denial of God's all-powerfulness. But again, this is a hyper-literal understanding of the passage, and it does not consider what God has revealed concerning himself within the remainder of Scripture. Isaiah 40.28 reads, Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. In light of what God revealed through the prophet Isaiah in the above verse, what then does rest in Genesis 2 mean? Why does God rest at all if He does not grow faint or weary? Well, the Bible tells us. Mark 2, 27-28. And Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. God's resting was not meant to be understood as a revelation concerning His nature, but as an example for humanity to follow. It was an action done for us and for our benefit. We are to rest on the Sabbath as an imitation of our God. To deny this and deny God's omnipotence based on this passage alone would be taking a blessing from God and twisting it into an attack on His nature. May we never do this. As it was with the establishment and giving of the Sabbath, God's response to Abraham's faithfulness when tested was not a revelation about the extent of His knowledge, but a gift to us. The Blessed Gift of Certainty The story of Abraham's sacrifice was a shadow of events to come, followed by a prophetic fulfillment of the allegory. The allegory does not end when God commands Abraham to spare his son, but continues through God's declaration of, For now I know. If the sacrifice of Abraham's son proved his devotion to God, then the sacrifice of God's own Son should prove His devotion to us. At the sign of the giving of the Son, God says, For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your Son, your only Son, from me. Now that God has provided for us this very same sign, we may have certainty by joyfully imitating the response of Almighty God. 
For now I know that God loves me, for he did not withhold his son, his only son, from me. Thoughts, questions, concerns. I have a, I, I shortened it a bit for today. I have a longer version. If anybody's interested, I could send it to you if you want to read it. All right. Let's dismiss. Will you pray for us, Elliot? Heavenly Father, I thank you for letting us come here today to fellowship and to worship you. Lord, I thank you for Michael's words today, Lord, and for all of the teaching that we had today. I ask that you'd help us to to be able to remember it, Lord, and to apply what we've learned to our lives and to how we think about you and how we worship you. I just ask that you'd help us all to always be killing sin in our lives and to be striving to become more like your son and uh, help us to love you more perfectly. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.